Today's conversation is brought to you by Brotherhood Mutual Insurance Company, a leading national provider of ministry-focused insurance and services. Headquartered in Fort Wayne, Indiana, Brotherhood Mutual has a heart for serving the church and keeping ministries thriving. For more information, visit brotherhoodmutual.com. Most people, the first ones to minister to them to their emotional and spiritual needs in a crisis or a trauma are chaplains. So, so I say that chaplains are the uh, tip of the spear, so to speak, when it comes to religious support. Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals. I'm your host, Walter Kim, NAE President. In these conversations, we seek to help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. In a world that feels increasingly impacted by crises of all kinds, we can really learn a lot from chaplains whose ministries take them into conflict zones and moments of individual crises. Steve West, Executive Director of the NAE's Evangelical Chaplains Commission, shares in a deeply personal way how to minister to people in crisis and the cost of such a ministry. Steve, it is a delight to have you on this podcast. We've had a lot of conversations over the years, and it strikes me that you have much insight to offer in this moment of time. I really appreciate you guys having me, and hopefully something that we say today will help somebody. Mm, undoubtedly it will. Um, first, uh, let's begin with telling us a little bit about how you got connected to the Evangelical Chaplains Commission and uh, your experience with leading it. Uh, I retired from the Air Force chaplaincy in uh, January of 2015, and we came down uh, a few weeks before that to our new house here in Alabama. And uh, the first morning that we woke up in the house, I got a phone call from Dave Sear and thought, he's never called me before. I wonder what's going on. And he said, have you got a job yet, Steve? I said, no, we're not sure what the Lord wants yet. And he said, well, I know what the Lord wants. He wants you to come to work for the National Association of Evangelicals. And so thus started the journey. And uh, it's been a wonderful one, just dealing with chaplains. Uh, one of the great things I get to stay uh, in the context of being a part of the military and being a part of hospitals and things like that. And so it's a real blessing for me. Um, so many of our chaplains are in military contexts, um, but what other types of contexts um, do chaplains exist in? There's all kinds uh, and more and more all the time. Uh, healthcare outside of the uh, military realm is the biggest area because that uh, encompasses hospitals, hospice, uh, centers, mental health, all kinds of things. And so we have a number of chaplains in healthcare. We have some that are in the Bureau of Prisons. Uh, and so they work federal prisons. Matter of fact, one of our chaplains is at 
the Supermax in Colorado as a chaplain, which is the most secure facility in the United States. Uh, we have law enforcement chaplains of different types. One of our chaplains is also the only operational chaplain for the FBI. And so we have people there. We have some that are first responders uh, in the sense that they are with an EMS, with a fire department, uh, with some of these different things. Uh, and of course, the ones that are in trauma centers. We also have a chaplain that's in campus ministries, and he goes on uh, about 10 campuses and works it. And then corporate is beginning to open up pretty big because people are beginning to see what I think the military really brought about as far as chaplaincy and that people are saying it's not just what they do religiously, but it's what they do is caring people that make a difference. You're describing a situation in which um, chaplains are bringing the presence of God into virtually every sphere of life, oftentimes spheres that are uh, deeply contended or have crisis in it. Um, that's very, very yeah. powerful. Um, so we've talked a bit about the Evangelical Chaplains Commission by name, but can you describe it a little bit more? What, what are we talking about when uh, we say that you are leading the Evangelical Chaplains Commission? What is that? Well, the Evangelical Chaplains Commission is made up of denominations and networks that have a common desire and cause in chaplaincy and want to join together. Uh, we are kind of the central voice for evangelical chaplaincy. Now, that doesn't mean we cover it all, but we have in the commission uh, 37 denominations and networks that are a part. So I represent over 3,000 chaplains, but the ones that are directly uh, connected to us as the commission, as we serve as their endorsers, which means someone that allows it to happen, that they can get a job because without it, they won't be able to. Uh, and so we have 160 chaplains plus, it changes every day, uh, that we're directly responsible for. So I, I go visit them, we have training for them, all kinds of things, but it's a really great thing for the uniting of so many denominations, just as it is in the NAE, same kind of umbrella effect and power in numbers when we're dealing with issues. So with the work of chaplaincy, you have said um, in times of crisis, chaplains are the visible reminders of God. Uh, draw that out a bit for us. Paint some pictures of what this actually looks like. Yeah, I, uh, I love that. The visible reminder of the holy is something that the first chief of chaplains when I was an active duty chaplain had as his theme, that we should be the visible reminders of the holy. And, and it was a great thing because you had to think about the fact that most people, the first ones to minister to them to their emotional and spiritual needs in a crisis or a trauma are chaplains. So, so I say that chaplains are the uh, tip of the spear, so to speak, mm -hmm. when it comes to religious support. And, you know, when people are in these situations, 
then chaplains are trained to come alongside them and to be there and to offer hope, to take care of any spiritual needs that they can, to pray with them, to talk with them. Uh, and then emotionally, for those who are, are, are not uh, connected to a church or to a faith or those things, that there's someone here that cares about me. And, and in those times, that's very important to people. So I say that we're visible reminders of the holy in the worst of times. So whether in Ukraine or in a hospital in Alabama, chaplains are there. Uh, and for the chaplains that you serve in these various contexts, um, are there certain principles of ministry that are consistent throughout? Yes. Uh, what it means is that a couple of things. One, chaplains generally work outside of a religious organization. So they're, they're in the secular world in the ministry that they have. And so one of the important things is that we're able to uh, minister in a pluralistic environment. Uh, we're not just uh, we're not just talking to Baptists. So we're not just talking to Assembly of God. We're not just talking to Christians. Uh, and so it's very important to recognize that we're there for people of all faiths and people with no faith. It's just that friendly frontline first thing, I'm in a terrible place, and that there are people who are caring for me and here with me in the most intense experiences in my life. Uh, in the military, the cross is the most recognizable badge in existence. Everybody knows when a chaplain walks in the room. And so when they see that cross, even if they don't know you, they know it. And so it's a reminder to them, just like the visible reminder of the holy, uh, that we are there to be there no matter who they are. Now, we can't always provide uh, what is said in some circles, provide or provide for. And so sometimes we can't provide the spiritual care they need. Uh, they're a different faith. And and there are specific things they need, but we also provide for, we get someone that can relate to them that they will be comfortable with and talk to. And so it's the provide if we can, provide for if we're not able to ourselves. Draw that out a, a bit for me uh, in terms okay. of, is there a story that helps us understand the nature of that work, that presence uh, that you you bring uh, of the holy of God. Yeah, uh, there are a few times. Of course, uh, I've been in some situations where I was uh, on ambulances at EMS, and right now in a surgical center. And so, personally, for me, uh, it's a little mixed bag. There's sometimes they'll say, "Oh, this is our chaplain," and the first thing they're saying. Do I need a chaplain? Uh, and so it's kind of a funny thing, but uh, then it kind of breaks the ice. And people are willing to talk to you as a chaplain, where in the context of evangelicalism and the churches, people would not talk to a pastor. If a local pastor, you as a local pastor, were 
in that situation, you came upon it or you were there, they generally don't want to hear from you. But most everyone has pretty much a calm in talking to a chaplain. One of the reasons for that is it's trust. They trust the chaplain. They trust that nothing's going to be shared. They trust that the only reason that person is there to take care of their needs. So there are a number of times where you start talking to someone and they, they'll say, I've never, I've never talked to a minister before uh, about these type of things, whether it's spiritual or a, something going on at the time in their life. So it's pretty neat. Steve, you, you know, humorously raise the question of a person saying, do, do I really need a chaplain at this moment? I mean, what does that say about my situation? Um, but that really indicates the intensity of the experience that chaplains are in. Uh, right. It's really intense. Um, it's intense yes. both for the person receiving care, but I imagine it's intense for the people, for the chaplains who are providing the care. Um, so what kind of advice do you offer to a person who is trying to minister, to provide care? Well, I can say this, uh, that when it comes down to ministering to people uh, in these contexts, until there's a relationship, uh, usually things don't, don't uh, click. It takes a little bit there for a prolonged, uh, just like therapy. Uh, you walk in or you come into a church as a pastor and you are there realistically for the first year or so, you're their preacher, not their pastor. Pastor is a term that, that's an endearing term that they say, this person is there for me. This person is no threat to me. This person cares for me. And so that's the type of things that uh, you're able to do in ministering to people. And they sense it. Uh, just like in most things, they sense that you're genuine. And as far as chaplaincy is concerned, I would say most people are in chaplaincy because they are genuine. They do care about the person in front of them. They can compartmentalize and just focus on that person and not on all the other things that they, they have to accomplish that day or other people they need to, to be with at times. Hmm. How, how does a person carry that kind of burden? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, and it goes back to some of what I was just saying. Uh, you know, you experience it, just like with me. I'll just say in, in my situation, uh, in my personal experience, uh, when you look at the fact that uh, you're going through some of the trauma, just like they're going through, you're there. Uh, a lot of times when the trauma is happening, not just when it's over. And so, you know, there's that bonding that, is an instant connection that you get. And so you carry some of the pain from that person or those people or that situation. And that's a, that's a heavy load, uh, just like uh, most ministers can say that they care so much about 
that situation or that person or that counselee that they can't just turn it off when they go home and and say, okay, I cared for them when I was there. That was it. And so caring that is difficult for anyone who cares about people. It doesn't even have to be ministry. If you care about people, you're not going to be able to just flip a switch. And so it makes it difficult for you. And you have to find ways and figure out ways to uh, minister. It's imperative to those that you're ministering to, to try to be able to empathize with them as much as possible. It's hard, but Walter, it's worth it. You describe a situation in which um, you share in the trauma. I mean, the person is experiencing trauma that's being cared for, uh, but typically the chaplain is right there experiencing something very similar, um, or perhaps having experienced past traumas um, themselves as chaplains having worked in a variety of right. contexts. And, and actually, you, you have a deeply personal story um, that you recount in your book, The Bronze Scar, um, about your own journey in this area. Right. How did you come to realize that you had PTSD? Thank God for wives and husbands who care. Uh, my daughter and my wife uh, were living in the same household. We were all in the same household. And, and for almost three years, they were saying, this last deployment, there's something that's different about you. You're not the person you were before. And, and really, a lot of that's not positive. Uh, you have, uh, you have some, some good things in that you have such a deeper concern for people and care for people, uh, much less judgmental, uh, as maybe before, but, uh, it took them three years to get me to the point where I would realize it. you have to understand that, that my assignment after that deployment, uh, was to the Pentagon to be chaplain for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So that's the highest military official uh, in the government. And so one of the things that I did, and a lot of people do, is that you uh, rationalize. You say, no, 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 it's the job. I I've got a lot of stress. I've got a lot of things on me, a lot of responsibilities and those kinds of things. And so actually to get them uh, off my back, so to speak. Uh, I made an appointment with defense stress management in the Pentagon, and they only see people having to do with PTSD. And so I went there and uh, having been in my position and my rank, you have to understand, I was I was uh, an 06, which is a, a full colonel at that time. And you just don't talk about things like that. And so when I went to get help, the thing that hit me was I said, if you can just give me something that says I don't have PTSD, I can show my wife and daughter. That's good. Well, 
basically said, you have to come three times. You have to commit to that to talk to us. And the third, at the end of the third sessions with myself and the psychiatrist, we'll diagnose whether you have it or not. And when we finished the session that day, I had, at the beginning, I'd said yes. But when we finished the session that day, he said, Steve, I want to do something I've never done. I'm recommending that you be diagnosed with PTSD now. It's that evident. And that Walter, that was like a ton of bricks. It's I went in there for one purpose. And then all of a sudden they're saying, well, not only are they right, but it's bad enough that you've got to get a handle on this and take care of it. So that's how I came to the understanding. It was through the love of my family. Did you accept that diagnosis right away or what did you, how did you process that? Yeah, uh, actually it takes a while. Uh, I accepted in my mind, having a marriage and family therapy background. Uh, I, I went in there wanting to be as open and honest as I could, because when you're a counselor, a therapist, it's just tough to have somebody sit there and lie to you and their self uh, before you finally get to the truth. So I said, I'll do it right away. And so I accepted it on that cognitive level uh, that, okay, this is all adding up. They say it, I'll accept it. But there's a big difference in accepting it in, in that cognitive way and really accepting it into your own life that, wow, I've got something wrong with me. Because one of the things that goes in, like in my mind, I'm a minister. My faith ought to be enough. I help other people with PTSD. No way that I've got it. I know the signs. I know how to, to counteract some of the symptoms and things. And so I had to deal with those kinds of things. So it, it did take me. Uh, I really accepted within about six months, but that acceptance continued on. And I finally have, I think, really recently with the writing of the book that I finally came to terms with there's nothing wrong with you having it. You're not weak because you have it. Oh, by the way, you have it. Mm. Wow. So you talk about writing the book as being this um, process that you are not only experiencing therapy in some ways and recounting the stories and working through right. your experiences, but you are offering counsel through this book to many others to discover their own journey. Um, in the circles that you're in, what is your assessment of how people are talking about trauma today? You've listed your own reticence to acknowledge it and difficulties. Yeah. Um, but in writing the book, it seems like people are responding uh, in the reading of that book. So what's your assessment of how people are talking about trauma? Well, that's great that you asked because my answer, that's the most positive answer I probably have given so far. And that is, for the most part, the idea of trauma and, and all, the, all the talk around it and all the understanding, uh, people are talking about it today. 
And that's an opportunity for most people. They want to understand more about it. They want to try to get not just trauma, but things that come out of trauma like PTSD. And those are trending topics for conversations these days. Uh, it's not taboo to talk about those things in public. Just think back a few years. We have been talking about trauma at the dinner table and, and in groups of friends and those kinds of things. No, but today we are. And so from my assessment, it is that people are beginning to understand it better. Uh, there's not as much confusion about it. There is confusion about, okay, once it's affecting your life, what does that do? Or how can you make it better? Or, or can it get better? And those things. But for the most part, talking about trauma, we're living in what I believe is the greatest time for people wanting to gain understanding about what it and its effects are all about. One of the hopes that um, I would have for this conversation is not simply that we inform people or give you a chance to share your story, though those are very important things, but maybe to equip people as well to recognize mm -hmm. trauma in their own lives, trauma in the lives of loved ones close to them, friends, colleagues at work. And in order to have that ability, um, I'm going to once again invite you to um, share a bit personally. PTSD may look different for different people. So yeah. how does it actually impact your daily life? How would we recognize it in someone? What does it look like? Well, just like most things in life, I believe people experience different symptoms and feelings, just like we can see something or hear something and and not hear it or see it the same way as a person even sitting next to us uh, that are that's in the same situation at the same time. And so uh, on a daily basis, on a normal basis, I can only say that for myself, and yet I know that this is true for most, one of the things about PTSD is, is that you constantly experience a level of anxiety. Mm. Like right now, I, I'm feeling the anxiety. Uh, even when I'm not doing anything, uh, if I'm not focused on something, Walter, I, I feel anxious. And so I remember in my life when before this, and it wasn't that way. And that affects anxiety affects everything about your day. Uh, how much it is uh, an effect on that day is how much it's kicking up, how much it's it's triggered because there are certain things that trigger and and everyone has different triggers. And when we say triggers, it just means that it, that's something that brings it back, uh, that brings the anxiety level higher. Uh, one of the things that I do and, and I will say that this is not this can be good in the short term, but it's not a positive thing is that. I have learned more and more how to avoid things. And so I avoid putting myself into situations. Uh, I avoid conflict. Uh, I would follow my sword for everything in my life. Uh, I was ready to go at any time to defend what I thought or believed. Uh, 
But if I can keep myself from having it, even in the home, I'll find a way to sneak off and, and go upstairs to my office uh, just because I can't deal with the stress at that moment. And that's kind of what makes it the hardest for people. They don't know what's going to cause it. Now, we do know some of the things. I know things that trigger me. Uh, but there are a lot of things that trigger me that I, I say, like, where did that come from? Or, or like yesterday, just being out and all of a sudden feeling a higher level of anxiety and the shakiness inside. And, and I'm thinking, there's nothing happening. I, I'm not thinking about anything negative. Uh, that's one of the sneaky things. And that's what I believe that the devil uses so much is the fact that then we question is it us? You know, the truth is uh, people who suffer from significant uh, anxiety ridden and depressive disorders, uh, many of those people will ask themselves in some way, am I crazy? Hmm. And of course, the answer is no. But in the moment, you're saying, I can't control things. I can't control how I react. I can't control how I act. I can't control how I feel in different situations and things. And it's really disconcerting. It is. It causes more anxiety. So it's the idea that that things happening, it's a cycle <laughs> and it just doesn't end. Now, that's not to say doom and gloom, because there are a lot of things that help for sure. Mm. And it's not always apparent when that kind of tipping point occurs, because you've described your own journey in which you've had several deployments, but it was only the most recent one where your family recognized something changed. Um, just give us a little bit of framework for the kind of the narrative of, of your life. So what were some of the deployments and in the most recent situation, um, what do you suspect had caused some different response on your part? Well, one of the things in diagnosing me, one of the things that they said is your, your PTSD is not event driven. Mm. There is not something that took you over the top because of that event. Now, there are some significance ones. In, that was my worst deployment in 2007, 2008 in Iraq. Mm. It was at the time of the surge. And we had so many more people that were being killed and wounded then. And so because of that, uh, it is what they called the tipping point. It's what just got it to the point where you can't handle this anymore. Realistically, uh, in my life, they said, yours has been long term. You lost your fiance just weeks before your wedding. Uh, and that traumatized you years ago. Uh, you've worked on ambulances and EMSs uh, different times through your adult life. And so you've taken on that trauma and those things. And so in my situation, Walter, it was just, it was a culmination of a number of things. And they said, that's, that's a harder one to treat because if you can, if you can break down the event you can help people even better. It's when it's experiential. 
It's when you carry the weight of others. It's when you can't turn off things because of your loving, caring natures that comes in Christ. And so that's the situation for me. And that's why, that's why I take psychotropic drugs every day. I mean, some of the positives uh, that I've found in this is, uh, oddly enough, uh, medications and seeking professional help, uh, mental health help that we call it. Uh, but in my case, even though there's some conflict there, faith is the biggest thing. Uh, I mean, first of all, God, period. God doesn't judge me. God helps me. God provides people. And so that's a number one. But then also faith in the sense of my individual faith and relationship with God, but collectively too. Uh, I know that I, I have a lot of family and friends that uh, do know, and they're praying for me. They ask me, they care about, and they accept it. So in other words, it's wonderful when we get to a place where we know we're not walking this journey alone. I couldn't do it alone. No way. I, I, matter of fact, that's what was happening. I was becoming a wreck uh, just because I couldn't handle it and would not look at that side of it. And that's one of the hardest things for people is because they're afraid people will judge them. They won't say anything. Plus, think about it. Like I said, these are the kind of things you don't talk about in normal conversation. And so there's a lot of people who would be willing to help you that you just don't know. And you're not going to just put it out there. And you don't want to feel like they're feeling sorry for me. Oh, oh I'm so sorry. I had somebody uh, the other day come up to me from behind and uh, they put their hands on my shoulder and they said, Steve, I had no idea. I'm so sorry for what's happened and what's going on in your life. And the first thing out of my, in my mind and out of my mouth was, thank you very much, but my life is wonderful. God blesses me so much more than I believe he blesses many people. Uh, he's allowed me to experience wonderful things. He's put wonderful things in my life. My goodness, I didn't expect to walk into the NAE, and that's been a tremendous thing in my life. Uh, so God's blessing me all the time. And thank you for caring and, and care as you can but I'm not less of anything because of it. Well, you have this profound faith that clearly shows up um, in the honesty with yeah. which you're addressing the issue and the earnestness in which you're connecting with God. And you've talked about how you've been blessed, but I can also say you are a blessing to others. And, and one of the ways is, is through this book that you've written. I mean, what is, what is your hope with your book, The Bronze Scar? What, what is your hope more generally about being so open with your own experience of PTSD? Uh, I would say that as people share feelings, that's going to help. 
because then you're getting to the root of, okay, what's, what's causing certain things in my life? And, and one of the big things about that is, is that when you, uh, when you are traumatized, uh, by the way, I believe that most people have post-traumatic stress but it just doesn't reach a level of a disorder. If we think about it, just about everybody has something or some things trauma in their past life that affects who they are or how they react and still even can cause them sadness and things. But the great thing about the feelings part, and that's the key, it's helping those with PTSD realize you're not alone. No, you're not crazy. Yeah, there are other people that feel exactly like you. It's also in helping the families and friends get a glimpse of what's going on inside of that person when they may be acting inappropriately or illogically, uh, even if it's not negative. And so if I can help people and this book can help people who have PTSD say, that's me. Oh, my gosh that is me. And if I can do it, so if it does what I pray, and it is doing this, I'm seeing that from people all the time, uh, with family and friends that say, wow. When he or she would get mad at me, when there's nothing to get mad at, it's just a simple nothing. It drives you crazy because that person you love is not acting right. And so being able to see, okay, what's it feel like to that person? What's going on in their heart and what's going on in their head? What are they thinking or feeling? A lot of people have already said that has helped me at least understand it. Doesn't mean I condone it. But I understand it and I don't get as upset or as judgmental because they don't want to do this. It's not a desire. Believe me, it's not a desire. No one wants PTSD. No one. But when you have it, there are things you can do to help it. And one of those things is realize where you are in relation to where everybody else is dealing with this is. You may have different symptoms, some of them. That's why in the symptoms in the book, uh, some apply to some people, some apply to other people. But as long as it connects, it does it. And if God can use it, that's what it's all about. Wow, spoken with a lot of compassion. Thank you. Our guest on today's conversation has been Steve West. I'm Walter Kim, and on behalf of us all, thank you, Steve. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please sign up for our email list and visit our resource hub at nae.org.